welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from the OA's Brit Marling and Zal Batmanglidge about reuniting for new Hulu Disney Plus drama A Murder at the End of the World. Beat Shazam creator Jeff Aploff on his new CBS game show Loteria Loca and why he's not afraid of AI. And RTE's David Crean on the types of dramas the Irish public broadcaster is keen to develop heading into C21's Content London next week. Four years since its abrupt cancellation, The OA remains one of Netflix's most stylish and popular original series. Blending science fiction, mystery, supernatural and fantasy, the show was the first from co-creators and regular collaborators Britt Marling and Zal Batmanglidge. Now the pair are back with a new seven-part drama for Hulu and Disney+, Plus called The Murder at the End of the World, about a Gen Z amateur sleuth invited to join a gathering of tech giants at a remote Icelandic retreat hosted by a reclusive billionaire. When one of the guests winds up dead, the scene is set for a murder mystery exploring topics such as climate change and artificial intelligence. Marling and Batmanglidge spoke with Michael Pickard about the show made by FX Productions, how it aims to subvert the traditional idea of a whodunit and making sense of the world through storytelling. And so how are you guys sort of reflecting on the show sort of coming out? It's been a few years since we last sort of heard from you, I guess. So so how are you feeling about re-entering society, I guess, as, as, with a new show? <laughs> Not a fun process for me because um, it, it, it's funny, you know, like we often use the metaphor of gardening. You know, Britt and I are gardeners and, you know, it does feel like it's been, uh, you know, many years since we put something out. But we've been working every day on this for the last four years side by side, toiling in the garden. And now we've come to the farmer's market and our produce is on the stands. You know, our flowers are on the stands and you know, hopefully it tastes good. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, that, that leads me to my next question. I mean, obviously, I know you probably haven't been sitting on your hands for four years. So, I mean, how how has it been sort of post the OA and, and obviously the show getting cancelled and, and the fan reaction to that has been quite, you know, everyone's been very upset about that. So how has it been for you guys sort of processing the fact that you wouldn't perhaps get to tell the, the end of the story you wanted to and, and having to then come up with new ideas? is for, for what's next. You know, it's interesting. I'll say a couple of things about that. The funny thing about Zal and I is that I think maybe the most, maybe to our detriment, there we have too many ideas. <laughs> and so if anything, it's like one idea ends and we're like, okay, you know, what of the 20 things that we really want to do, do we choose and decide to do? Um, we think about it like a garden between us. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, Darby Hart and this story of murder at the end of the world, you know, popped up first. But there's other you know sunflowers and irises and this and that and you just feel like oh my god like how do we choose and so that part is exciting you know it's Mm -hmm. exciting to throw yourself into a new story and of course you know the ending of OA was was really sad and hard but at the same time the presence of the fans and the energy around it was so beautiful that it was hard to sit in grief for too long because you know the flash mobs that organized that were doing the movements and the protests and the fan fictions and the art, just the sheer art people created. Like I have been sent so many watercolors of old 
knight and clay sculptures and Lego sculptures. And it's just, it's dazzling to see all that art in the world and to feel like we made something that that was able to touch people and, and kick that off. And then give it gave so much back to us that if anything, it just gives you more fuel for continuing on for, 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 to keep going. Cause you know, you're like, okay, well, we're doing something right. You know, it's moving, it's moving people. Um, yeah. Having done this now a second time, you know, the OA being the first time this is the second time we're still making things exactly like we were when we first started and technology allowed us to make things with a video camera and, or an SLR camera even, and uh, a laptop with Final Cut Pro and a hard drive. Um, we made our first films that went to Sundance by hand and we had so much fun making it by hand and everybody who worked on it did it for love. Like they weren't getting paid. We weren't getting paid. We did it all by hand. And what's crazy is now I didn't understand all the fan reaction to the OA at the time. It just felt like so intense. And I kind of like, you know, didn't fully, wasn't able to fully take it in. But now I realize that what they're, what the people were responding to, this is my theory of, or my feeling of what people are responding to is the handmade quality of it. And we've made another show by hand. And so it's just so rare. Like the truth is television shows aren't made by hand. They're usually, they have a history of being made to sell something. And then even when HBO came and sort of changed, mixed up that model, there was so much precedent. Like everybody who made the shows on HBO had been trained in a traditional way. And Britt and I didn't have any of that. You know, when Netflix came along in the early 2010s, we were just coming off Sundance and coming off making things by hand. And so then we just made shows at Netflix by hand. And now we've made a show at FX by hand. And at FX, it's amazing because you have John Langraff and Gina Bailey and who want to get in the water with you. You know, they're not just sort of giving you ideas from the sidelines or guiding you from the sidelines. They're guiding you from inside the water. And that's, that's very rare. And so it, it, in some ways, it's even more by hand. Yeah, absolutely. And and so why did you want to kind of get into the detective genre, I guess, to broadly describe the show? And, and what was your take on a detective show? I mean, we, we've seen from the first two episodes, what your take is from my perspective, but what was, what was, you know, what was your take on it? And what did you kind of set out to, to do? I guess part of it is that I, I think our work always involves an element of like, sort of capital M mystery. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because that's how we feel about being alive. Like we're just inside this great thrilling mystery. And it is a thriller because usually as the protagonist, you feel a little outmatched against the forces of antagonism. So I think that's a very natural zone for us to create from. I think with this, we were really interested in the idea of doing a whodunit, but whodunits are usually tongue in cheek. You know, they're not, when we watch them, we don't feel they're fully real. There's something fantastical about them. And I think for us, we were interested in the idea of doing a whodunit because it feels a little bit like the climate of the world is, is that like, we're all kind of looking around and being like, okay, the unravel of democracy, the climate crisis, like all these hyper objects that we're up against, you know, and whodunit, like, who's to blame exactly. So we wanted to try to take the whodunit and take some of the snark out of it and make it feel very grounded. And the the two elements that came together that I think let us create a kind of Venn diagram that could do that was the idea of the the billionaire's sort of secret technology retreat. Um, You know, if the whodunit used to take place in the sort of Agatha Christie style, you know, English manner, and that was the seat of power at that time, definitely feels like the new seat of power is in in Silicon Valley and in these kind of tech fiefdoms that are created. And so we wanted to explore that. And then 
And then the other piece that came was the idea of Darby Hart as an amateur sleuth, you know, somebody who considers herself a citizen detective and that it comes from a very um, pure place, uh, like a vocation or a calling rather than a career. And that that she has you know, amassed the skill set that allows her to do this because as a Gen Z amateur sleuth, she's been on the internet solving cold cases since she was a teenager in a real way, not in a tongue-in-cheek way. And um, and and she has the credibility and the passion to do it. So it kind of felt like those things came together and suddenly there was a way of doing the mystery or a whodunit with a young female protagonist that would not have even been possible, you know, five years, 10 years prior without the idea of Gen Z sort of coming of age with the internet mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and i mean she's a, a very compelling character and we see um obviously she she narrates the show and and also i i noticed that you know she's a storyteller you, the protagonist of this story is a storyteller and i wondered maybe I'm, I'm going too deep even for you guys but you know how how much of what she tells us can we trust how much of what she tells us is she's spinning a story that she's telling us and and you know obviously i don't want you to spoil it but is that you know why did you want her to be a storyteller perhaps is is my question i question you see me you have an answer go ahead i just love that you asked that i love that no one's asked that yet no one's asked that and i think it's i think it's so important because i think you know darby could be an amateur sleuth who's like so inside her world she doesn't care to communicate it but she cares to communicate it Mm -hmm. she's really passionate about what she's doing and i think you know writes that book to both share the passion but also to try to understand the experience she had and how traumatic it was and as you go forward in the chapter you keep going backwards to that experience. And I think part of it was we were really interested in thinking about time, not as like a linear experience, but thinking of it as something more circular or elliptical and how, of course, we know that the past animates the present, but how does the present animate the past? Every time we go back and remember something, we reauthor it. We literally change it. Like it never stays the same. And so we were interested in that relationship between the past and the present and um, thinking of her as a storyteller or somebody who could frame her life that way or, or communicate her life that way was really important to being able to achieve that, I think. And I think that the detective story is always about storytelling because I think storytelling is how we make sense of the world. I may be biased as a storyteller, but I think that, you know, like that's why the detective story has long been a staple of making of moving of movies is because like the detective just tells you a story, the story that you, the audience agree is the best fit, even if you didn't see it, you know, like, and so it's just like we're all competing for what's the best story to tell at any given moment about the world we live in. And what's funny right now is to see it all play out on the internet where people are fighting with competing stories all the time. And not just two competing stories, but like many, many competing stories. And we're trying to build a framework of reality, but using storytelling. So that's really the the real whodunit. <laughs> now, just that that's so true that before it used to be so consolidated, like there was just... Nightline or just ABC News or NBC News, and you had a handful of people that were narrating the story. And it was largely one or two myths that were running how we thought about things. And everybody had a cohesive narrative. Now, the internet in a really interesting way has completely fractured that narrative. And there are many authors and many storytellers and many perspectives. And yeah, it's it's a very fascinating time and a totally unprecedented time to be alive in. Yeah. 
And I mean, I'm following on from that, I guess it's it's Martin, isn't it? I think the filmmaker who says in episode two about he's just going to show his film and he sort of says, you know, sit forward and, and watch. And I wondered, you know, there's so much TV now and I think some, you know, people sort of acknowledge the need for, for sit back TV just to just to relax and, and just let it sort of sweep over you while you've got your phone and your laptop on in front of you. I mean, is that important? Ambient television. This is it, yeah. So is it important for you guys as, as storytellers to make something that will make people watching at home sit forward and, and really you know engross themselves in this world and the story that you create and, and you're not just making you know ambient tv yourselves i think what's really interesting is i don't know that i know how to engage with ambient tv so maybe i'm not the best i'm not the best person to author it like even when i'm watching the great british bake-off which i'm obsessed with like i'm so focused yeah. and like i don't look at my phone while i'm watching the great british bake-off i am like into the characters i'm studying the recipes like i, I think that might just be that kind of focus might just be who part of who we are as people but I also think like for me the stories that excite me are the ones that challenge me or give me a new perspective a new way of seeing things like I have often walked out of the cinema and felt changed like like I'm seeing something presented from a perspective or in a light that I hadn't seen before and that that kind of experience gets me really excited so I think that's how I can be energized to do the work but I'm curious what Z, what Zal would say. Well, I would say that, you know, it's a story of technology and the era that we live in. That's my answer to every question. And, and it is because Britt and I are going where we have freedom to make original works, uh, not only unmolested by the people making the work, but enhanced by the people making the work with us, like FX. And so we're in a situation where we're getting these canvases to work on and we're telling our stories, like how they're going to be consumed. Like, you know, that's up to anybody who wants to do it. I, I mean, I don't think it'll yield. I watch a lot. Unlike Brit, I watch a lot of ambient television and love to screening and stuff. I don't think this is um, this is that. But who knows? Maybe it's also something where. And I felt this with OA, where it also leads to multiple viewings. I think that you, one could get a lot out of watching this many times. So maybe, you know, you can watch it to screening, but you got to watch it three times for it to like work. I don't know. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's when you know you've, you're into it, I think, is if you do pick up your phone and all of a sudden you're rewinding it to find out what happened because you're, you're annoyed at yourself because you now have completely lost the plot. So, um, yeah, no, I was certainly really engaged in it. So, um, you know, congratulations on, on what you've done. And I look forward to seeing the rest of it. I mean, I guess then when you're sitting down and, and putting this all together, I mean, how would you just describe your, your partnership as writers, first of all, and, and pitching those ideas and, and you've got climate change and obviously AI is a big part of this. How are you researching the material and, and then what's it like for you both when you do just sit down at the typewriter or the with the notepad and, and actually start writing the script? Well, I think... I don't know what's my morality. Like, I just can't feel like, you know, Britt and I tell stories from scratch, right? So we're like, we're not adapting something that someone else wrote. We're not adapting something old. We're not like, we're writing a story from scratch. And I just feel like, how can you sit down and even tell each other a story from scratch or write a story from scratch that's not dealing with the things that are at play in the world, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think the climate crisis will inform every story we tell from now on because how, like, we're not going to get, a, we're not going to outrun this or be able to put our heads in the sand. And, you know, it's funny that there is an AI assistant in the show because when we wrote it, people were like, oh, you know, is that a little bit in the future? Like, is that far fetched? And now it's happened. So I think for most of the audience, they're not going to realize <laughs> that it's exactly that kind of sort of searching for what's 
happening in the world that's crucial to storytelling because if you're not searching for that you can't meet the story with the moment and and so when you're writing i mean what what would you say are you, what is one of you writing a script and and then the other one will sort of take a pass or are you in a room together sort of writing together how, how does it kind of work that dynamic you know and i think something we learned over time is that the best thing is to tell it orally for a long time okay. um if you try to put it on the page you spend a lot of effort getting it on the page and then you're less likely to play with it or change it because like, oh, I spent, you know, three weeks getting this on the page. Like it's got to be this. So I think what we've learned in our practice is to just tell it out loud for a long time, back and forth to each other and bring new pieces to the table. And sometimes that's research, you know, like all the hacks in the story are real. So sometimes that's about like um, just spending hours doing research on hacks and thinking about which hacks could be the most visually exciting to put on screen. Um, and we can bring that in and a piece of that can inform something. And sometimes it's about a dream, you know, one of us had the night before or an encounter and we kind of just keep meeting and keep pooling things together. And then at some point, a real narrative starts to come out of that. And then, but the writing part, you know, always has to happen alone because it's, you kind of got to like go into the zone and be like, okay, I got to put myself inside this character now and, and see the world from their eyes. And I have to do that inside every character. And that is a kind of lonely internal process you know and then we're sort of bring each other the work that we've done and be like what do you think you know and I think we've both learned to not um critique each other in a way that would shut each other down but to invite each other always to do our best work and when something isn't working that isn't the fault of either one of us as writers it's just like we just didn't quite get it that time and now we're going to try again and I think by the time you've been doing that for over a decade you you aren't bruising each other's egos anymore you know you're just trying to find the best work together and if i can just ask you quickly well both of you really just about the creating the visual style because i know is it brit this is your first sort of directing job so how did you sort of create the world of the show and, and the visual style and, and brit how was that for you directing i mean brit said it so she really should talk about it the, the pilot was directed by brit and the whole visual palette was hers I, I mean i think it it was exciting it was exciting because i think as a screenwriter we are both very visual mm. you know we we think in terms you know a lot of times to read a script and it's a lot of like novelistic internal description that's hard to make visual but I think our scripts read more as like literally what you're seeing in a moving image it's a kind of map for that mm -hmm. so it was really nice to be able to take that to the screen and to you know do the work of like trying to take what's inside my imagination and not drop any of it as you make the translation even though you have all these limitations time money resources the pandemic you know how do you hold on to what's inside your mind and and best invite your collaborators to inside that vision to achieve it together and sometimes that's as simple as like I found a beautiful oil painting and the colors of it were just like exactly the colors that were in my imagination the blues and the soft blushes and so you know I remember giving that to Megan our incredible costume designer and being like okay this is just the world we're gonna stay in and she's like what about green nope no green what about orange nope no orange what about yellow nope 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 no yellow you know and so then you would go into Megan's costume department and it would be floor to ceiling two stories of costumes that were all just in red and blues and blushes and that kind of tonal control really makes you feel when you're in Iceland and then when you go into the American West of the desert which comes later you know that's a completely different palette and all the colors are really controlled there so that as you braid the past and the present together and it becomes more and more of a seamless braid in terms of the cuts the colors are making you feel a distinct world a distinct emotional world mm -hmm. one that is 
you know, frigid and terrifying and another that's hot blooded and warm and like on fire. And so getting to do that on this was, was an incredible time. And it was also exciting because I think I wanted to attempt to write the kind of character that I wish somebody had offered me when I was in my twenties. Um, but there weren't as many women writing and directing men. So, you know, if you came of age as an actor at that time, it was hard to find those roles. And it felt like, I think a lot of making change is about making change intergenerationally about reaching a place where you can give to the next generation, something that wasn't there for you. Um, and so that, that was something that was really important to me on this is to try to write that part. Jeff Aploff is the president and chief executive of Los Angeles-based Aploff Entertainment, behind series including Fox's Don't Forget the Lyrics, Boom, Beat Shazam and a string of others. As a creator, exec producer and showrunner, his other credits include NBC's version of BBC game show The Wheel and now a new game show for CBS called Loteria Loca, based on the Latin game of chance Loteria. Hosted and exec produced by Jane Camille, the series is produced by Warner Brothers Unscripted Television, Warner Horizon and Aploff, and the exec spoke to Clive Whittingham about the show, the impact of the US writers and actors' strikes, and why he's not afraid of AI. So, Jeff, tell me, um, tell me about yeah, about this show because it looks a bit mad. Um, <laughs> just been just been watching some clips. Um, very Latin, very um, very out there. Um, tell me a little bit about the origins of it and how it came into being. Totally. Well, Loteria uh, Loteria Loca starts from a game called Loteria, which is actually four hundred years old. It's a uh, it's like a bingo game. It actually started in Italy, then it moved through Europe, and eventually in Mexico it became a giant household game. So every household in Mexico and many in South America have that game. I was introduced to the game and I looked at it and it's like, it's like bingo, but instead of using numbers, they use these really cool images and stuff like that. And I thought how cool that would be to be able to do a cool show like that and then place it in a, you know, like on a set that's colorful and fun. And you feel like you've been transported. Like I, I, I always want to do a game show where it feels like you're on vacation. Right. So that's kind of the, you know, the origin of the game. And then we took that and then, you know, put all the fun mechanics and decision making and big giant money swings and all of that to create the show we have. Then we sprinkle the outside as you saw with dancers and a live band and Sheila E and you go, you know, because really you say to yourself, how do we do something different? Like that's really what you want, right? How do we do something on television that feels different than anything else? And if nothing else, it feels different and it feels fun. So yeah. It does. How that talk to me about the, the pitching process and how it how it landed with uh, with CBS. Well the pitch was pretty amazing. We you know every time that we did a pitch, you know when I do a pitch, I do I do it all. I came in and I brought churros. I made spicy margaritas. I did. We did all of this stuff. And because of COVID, not that many people are doing pitches in person anymore. Um, of course, I brought our host with us and we do a full presentation. So we came in. We had all of that stuff. We uh, did the presentation for the executives at CBS. And what was weird is they had this giant conference room. It was a big, giant glass conference room. We did the whole entire presentation. And we already had another network that had already said, hey, they wanted to do the show, right? So we were in a good spot. Like it was like, 
were comfortable. They saw the whole thing and they were like, thank you so much. We love it. Thank you. And they left and they went around. You watched them walk down the hallway and away and they were out of sight. So we're like, okay, let's have a margarita. Let's eat a churro. So everybody was like, literally had a cocktail. And then you saw them coming back. The three of them started walking down the hallway and walking towards the door. And I honestly thought, oh my God, they are going to tell us to leave that they need the conference room, right? They're going to be like, and they came in and Amy Wright Eisenbach, who's the you know president of the network, um, said, hey, in the words of another game show that we have on this network, let's make a deal. And I was like, seriously? And she's like, yes, I love you. And I went over and gave her a hug. And then we poured margaritas. And that was how it happened. And literally within days, they were just like, oh, my God, we got to have it and made the deal. And it was done. One of your most successful pitches. I mean, that's is that the, the, the trick is to get them drunk, is it? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. The the trick, the trick is to get the yes in the room. How you get the yes, who cares, right? Let's go get the yes. Now, it, you know, the, the idea of the of the drinks was really to give just a feel of like, hey, like we're doing something fun. You know, we're in show business, like bring the show. You know what I mean? That was the idea. Like, let's just have some fun in the room. Yeah. Talk to me about the, the casting. Was it, and were, were sort of CBS involved in that or did you have it cast? Anyway, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, my niece, Raina, and another guy named Luke do all of my shows. They do all the casting for all of our shows. So this show was a very unique type of show, you know, but it was also not as hard as some of the other shows that we have, right? Like when you think about like a beach is or don't forget the lyrics, you have to have an expert in music and they've got to have a great story and like all of these things. For this particular show, what I really wanted was people that really needed the money, that really wanted to play. You wanted some people people because no, well, you can find people that play on a game show, but they don't need the money as bad. But when you have someone that really needs it and they're a risk taker and they've got a great story and they've got a big personality, you start to check these boxes. And that's really what we were looking for. And uh, I think we found some great people. I mean, we really did. I was watching back the episode last night. It was amazing. And next week, so we did the we did the premiere. Then we did last night. And then next week, I think, is better than both of those. Like, it just keeps getting better. So we've got a lot of really, really great people. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the casting. And is CBS involved? They're involved to the point where, of course, you get the people. We test them. We do all the stuff we do. And then we send them to the network. And they tell us if they, you know, if there's anybody that they didn't think fit for whatever reason it is. But for the most part, you know, CBS did a great job in letting us produce the show and then guided us along the way to, you know, what they felt was right. I'll do my best not to ask this one clumsily. It's it's a very, it's, it's a Latin concept and it's a very, it's a very Latino show, you know, to look at it, but it's on a mainstream broadcast network in the US rather than, I, I kind of, I don't know, I sort of would have expected this show to turn up on a US Hispanic network. So is, is that a trend or is this a, a one-off I, I don't know like i said i was trying to ask it in a non-clumsy way i hope you i hope you understand what i'm sort of getting at no i i understand exactly what you're saying i mean listen we are we created a game show for a in america what we call a giant broadcast audience which means for a big american audience that's what we did it's bingo with the skin of a mexican show if i called that show crazy bingo and i did it exactly the same way and in fact if i came to the uk okay and instead of it being all the images that you see 
see that are all these different things. And it was just cool images. And we went like, you know, here's all these cool things from the UK or whatever it may be. Then you could do that show tomorrow and it wouldn't feel like it was a, you know, like a Latin show. But it is. And it's a Latin game. And I have a great host like he, like Jaime Camille's as good as they come, right? So is it a one-off? Look, what I would say is we're an original. We came in, we came in with something completely different than anybody was doing. Will it spawn off some other shows that might do something like that? Potentially, but I don't look at it like that. It was really, here's a big fun game show. It didn't make a difference how we did it. The mechanics of this show are similar mechanics that you would use in any game show. It has big giant swings. It's really fun. There's decisions with consequence, all of those things. Then I add the dancers and the band. That's not in every game show, right? But it's fun to do something different. Then we put it in like an actual, feels like an actual location. That feels different. But ultimately, the mechanics of the show are the mechanics that have been in the mechanics of the most successful game shows in history. If you think about who wants to be a millionaire, if you think about deal or no deal, the mechanics are very, very simple. I give you a choice. It's a decision. When you make that decision, there's a consequence. Oh my God, there's ups and downs and all that. All of that is like, that's, those are the basics of game shows. What are the current trends you're seeing in formats? These things go up and down and cyclical, you know, game shows are in one year and not the next and things. But what what is the state of the American market at the moment? What's hot and what's not in formats? Yeah, but what I've seen that's that's hot, there's a lot of stuff that's not, right? And it's all varied. And I, I always say the cream rises to the top. And if it's not, it's not for a reason and whatever that is, right? So there's multiple reasons why it's not. What's hot feels to me uh, in America right now are guessing games. Games where you're trying in the show like a mask singer, right? Where you're trying to figure out something and it's very easy for the audience to be able to play along. And without even thinking about it, it's just integral to the game that you are playing a guessing game. So, you know, there's like, I can see your voice. There's other stuff like that. And then we're doing a brand new show called We Are Family that has a feel of that too. But that's basically the idea is that I think those big, fun guessing games that, uh, you know, curiosity killed the cat, right? So it's that type of thing where people are trying to like figure out and be on the edge of their seat. And yeah, I think that's the the hot thing right now. Have you guys seen... um new opportunities opening up um, because obviously there's been a prolonged strike of both actors and writers in scripted. I wonder if these broadcast networks have got a whole load of slots they're looking to fill with unscripted, whether whether you've seen that materialise or whether the strike didn't go on long enough for, for, for that to happen. Has, has that changed the, the market for you guys at all? Well, you never want to benefit from anybody else's misfortune, right? So that's not like, that's never the goal. And we've actually been, you know, we've been doing two to three shows per year for the last 10 years. So we've been, you know, we've been steady in creating, developing, selling and producing shows for a long time. Do I think that after the strike, people got freaked out after a little while, they're like, man, if this thing doesn't come, like we're going to need, we're going to need content. So I do think that there was that in the marketplace. Um, and so, yes, I do think it created some opportunity that I think for some people that that was there. But also, I think that the networks were constantly looking like they, you know, nobody wants to be all unscripted. That's not what broadcast networks are. So I hope that answers your question. It does. Yes. <laughs> um, I added that I'm also interested talking to people that work in formats now about, I mean, who knows, right? But the potential of, of AI in formats, only because I was talking to Phil Gurin and the Frapper guys 
um, recently, and they had sort of played around with getting AI to create, you know, shows them what would it look like. And, you know, they said that some of the ideas it kicked out weren't actually that bad. And also you could sort of make AI, you could feed the Frapper copycat uh, formula into um, AI and tell it, I, I need it to score less than this. But then AI can't go in a room with a whole load of margaritas and pitch a show like you've like the story that you've just told me. So I wonder what sort of role you see in format creation or development, if any, for, for AI moving forward. Do you see it as a sort of friend or is it is it coming to eat your dinner? I'll answer the second half of it first. I'm not worried about anybody coming and eating our dinner. We <laughs> we do like what you said. You know, it is it is very, very hard to do what we do. We create shows, we develop shows, we sell the show, and then we produce the show, and then we do full post. We do all the production. So when somebody wants a show, and we do it at a number where we always come in at or below budget. Like we never get caught with our pants down, right? So when you do that, it creates you create a great place for yourself, right? Where it's hard to go, AI is not going to do that. There still has to be a team that's going to go execute whatever idea that happens, right? And then, you know, the way it works, Clive, is you can create a format. A format is not the answer. The format is just like, that's the shell. That's like creating the house and then inside it's completely empty. You go, okay, we have to go create every single mechanic, every single thing so that it's perfect. And it, you know, you have to put it up on its feet. You have to do run throughs. You have to really beat it up and be willing to do that and willing to spend the money and the time to make sure that the format is perfect. We do that on a daily basis. So do I think that there's specific formats that could um, utilize AI, I do. Do I think that we could use AI and put some stuff in and get some stuff out? Sure. It's like having another brain. Like it's the same as bringing another person in the room. You know, the more brains, the better most of the time. And then, <laughs> so do I think that, but, but am I worried that like AI is coming to take over? I'm not, I, I, I don't think like that, you know, plus I'm, you know, listen, I'm in an age where, you know, AI's got to really, they got to start coming in how, you know, they better, they better get it all in and all done. Cause no, I'm just kidding. So, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't fear, I don't fear anything like that to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel getting knocked down. Uh, and on the budget question that you, you, you mentioned there, you guys are experienced with it, with your budgets and whatever we hear a lot, certainly on this side of the Atlantic and um, other producers I've spoken to in America recently have, have said, Said things like inflation, adding sort of, you know, 50, maybe even 70% to the cost of a show compared to sort of four years ago. Um, is is that how have you found it? And is that the biggest challenge that sort of faced you through through 2023? I mean, I have to be honest with you, Clive, we we run a really tight ship. Um, we have always thought about the bottom line. We have always thought about the cost of the network. It's how we run our business. It doesn't make sense to do it otherwise. That's why you've got big, giant companies having all of these union problems, because both sides don't think of each other and cover each other. You know, they have to cover us and we have to cover them. So we've been doing that for a very long time. We're not all of a sudden taken off guard and going, oh, my God, how are we going to do this now? This is what we've been doing. So we try to keep a very lean team. We try to think about how we're going to do formats and pitch formats that are reasonable. You know, there are certain formats. I've come up with formats that you go, listen, because people come to me all the time. They're like, we need a really big 
format. And you're like, okay, well, what does that mean to you? Because really big doesn't always have to be really expensive. There's different ways to do big, right? You could be big in concept and figure out how to do that. So um, my answer to you is, yes, we're sensitive to it. Yes, it has hit us, but it hasn't really affected us because we've always been conscious of that. And we're ahead of the curve. When we walk into a network, we go, listen, we know the budget's going to need to be here or lower. And they're like, we love you. They know what we, they love that we know what they're looking for. I mean, just being honest, that's part of the deal. Uh, what's your sort of two or three year plan for the company? Where Where's next for you guys? I know you've recently hired Joni Day, I think we we yeah. wrote about that. Tell us a little bit about that hire and the direction of travel for you guys. What's, what's your plan moving forward? Well, Joni Day uh, was with Fremantle for 10 years and is a development exec and worked for many years in other production doing physical production. So she is a brilliant mind and a great person and a person that can execute on all levels, which is what we were looking for, right? Because it can't just be me. And we have other great people in the company too. But I mean, you know, she's really, it was a real home run hire for us. And in the industry, people are like, really? How did you get Joni? Like, it was a big, really strategic hire. So number one, delighted about that. And my, you know, I think she'll just be, you know, additive in every way. For the company, we're going to continue to do all the things that we talked about in television. We're also creating an entire arm that is digital handheld games that we do both with um, specialized SQR codes, which is a proprietary technology of doing QR that is um, aligned with branded entertainment. We've got a couple of deals going with huge worldwide brands right now. So that's in the works and happening. We have um, several A-list celebrity-driven live events that we're doing that are also game-oriented and a little bit different. So we're just trying to make sure that we're looking at everything. You know, television is what it is. It's not like viewers are coming more and more and more. It's less and less. So you take a look at that and you go, okay, what are the other ways that we can make sure we're, you know, we're just d- dividing and making sure that we're looking at all the different ways to both make sure that we're in the right place when you need to be in the right place. And then to to deliver to audiences in the, in the you know, in the way that they're taking in media. Irish public broadcaster RTE is behind a string of international drama co-productions, including Kin with AMC and Viaplay, Hidden Assets with Acorn TV and The Dry with ITVX. Among the network's latest shows is Smother, made by local prodco Treasure together with BBC Studios, and The Boy Who Never Was, produced by Sabotica and pre-bought by UK TV and France Television this week. RTE Head of Drama David Crean spoke to Clive Whittingham about the pubcaster's continued commitment to co-productions despite ongoing cutbacks, the types of shows he's keen to develop heading into C21's Content London next week and the challenges of financing young adult series. Quickly tell me about what's been working well for you, what you're particularly pleased about. Yeah, I mean, particularly pleased this year. Just the volume of material we have compared to 2020, where we only had two dramas in 2020, Normal People and Dead Still. And then this year we have 10. So we have 43 43 and a half hours this year, up from 12 hours in 2020. So we were 
kind of tasked with the question of what would you do if you wanted to do two dramas in the winter, two dramas in the spring, so two renewable six-parters. So I got together with our Director of Acquisitions and Co-Productions, Dermot Horn, who's our principal buyer for acquisitions, and I'm obviously head of drama. So we worked out to make sure that what we were making as co-productions and commissioned drama were pretty much the same thing. Uh, and in terms of the content and the editorial sense of it, I would do all the editorial for all of our co-productions. And then Dermot would help out in in the fi- in the granular finance uh, once things really got going. So my picture then is to build a slate that has enough variety and enough kind of tone in it. But principally, our remit is to grow the Irish sector and to service the Irish audience, like to showcase Irish talent. And we had found that when we do, like Red Sea is a polling company in Ireland, and they do uh, polling panels about four a year that we commission, we're the client and the panellists don't know, uh, is that we found far outside our own kind of media bubble that members of the public had a far greater appreciation of Irish drama than we ever knew that they had. So when Barry Keoghan gets nominated for an Oscar for Banshees of Finishier and is they remember him as a character from Love Hate from 10 years from 10 years ago. Right, so that yeah. kind of connection into what Irish people do in the international stage does make them feel really kind of quaintly proud to be Irish in a sense that because we're just cynical media hacks is that we don't feel it in the same way. But they said they watch anything with Sharon Horgan in it, anything that some characters from any of our dramas are, but they do associate and feel delighted to see Irish character characters and dramas. And now that our shows are pretty much all co-produced, like nobody's, as you know, nobody's financing drama themselves any year. Anytime that what we do is we identify early on in our development slate what our kind of landing zones for shows, be they 24, 25 or 26. And Dermot and I take our slate to MIPCOM and we meet all the distributors, principally the Brits, all the distributors, but quite a few Americans as well. Uh, and we try and gain interest for our shows. Some we have, some of our existing shows like Hidden Assets is is a co-pro that we make with uh, DCD and Acorn. Uh, so it's just to deepen the relationships with, with them. But some of them are brand new shows. And we use the period then, our busiest time of the year is for, for everybody, is between MIPCOM and Content London. And then for me, moving on to Series Mania. So Content London is really, for me, where we follow up all of the meetings we had with distributors and other broadcasters from MIPCOM come catch up on where we were this time last year they want to know what our slate is uh what are we planning to make for 25 and 26 and there are a few kind of consistencies that come out all the time that we try and give certainty that if we commission a six-part renewable series that we will try and give it um a three-series run um providing it works for the audience so that producers can find a bit of certainty going to the market and say if this works for RTE they will then they really want to make it for three years so even at the beginning uh producers and us and writers can work on story arcs that can sustain over time um which is really good to give producers volume and also give us certainty for slots Uh, and that means that our um our kind of grid can fill up quite quickly if we we're only doing uh, two dramas in the spring and two dramas in, in the winter. Now, luckily enough that once our dramas started going out, the audience loved them so much that Artie said to me and to Dermot, please, can we have some more? And we had a couple of really, we had a really good time when uh, Skin Series 1 was followed by Hidden Assets, which was then followed by Smother on Sunday night. So we had like a linking effect of kind of 
three very strong female protagonists at the heart of the story, three very different types of shows, but just our audiences just got used to seeing dramas on Sunday nights uh, that were Irish, Irish-owned, Irish IP, that spoke to them, spoke to that audience primarily, but also we knew could travel really well. So Smother, if you don't know, was a co-production with Made by Treasure in Ireland, co-production with Treasure and BBC Studios, uh, and we we commissioned it. So we had a very good relationship with studios, great relationship with, with, with Treasure, and then my job as, as head of drama is to make sure that the drama is really connected to our territory primarily rather than something that's overly focused on international. Yeah, that was going to be my, my next question. <laughs> like, I mean, how much island does there have to be in your drama, basically? Like, if it's a co-production with, like, Acorn or somewhere like that, is it enough to just have, like, uh, a piece of Irish talent, like the names that you've already mentioned, or does it have to be location, or does... Ireland have to be sort of really deep-seated into the story. So, yeah, like how much Ireland does that have to be in your co-production? Sorry, that's a really um, I, I would say I would say more than two or three counties, to be honest. I mean, I, I think the sense that if something is is purely a co-pro, then that's totally fine. But if something is a commission, then it's it's has to work primarily in our territory. And we found that distributors and Acorn as well, like we work really closely with Catherine, is they all really wanted to work in our territory because we have the premier rights. So when we when Acorn then go to show, say, Hidden Assets or not Hidden Assets, when Acorn go and show, yeah, Hidden Assets or um, uh, BBC Studios try and sell some other, because we've had the premier window, is we can uh, share our consolidated data with them so they know that it has performed really, really well in Ireland. So we found if, say, with something like like Kin, which is a real reputation enhancer. So a Kin Series 1 was massive and Kin Series 2 is even bigger still. So that is a show that has to work for AMC, um, has to work for Viaplay, but really has to work for us. And the way that we did that was I know Peter McKenna extremely well. So my main job is to is to nurture a very close relationship with the key authors, authors of the shows, primarily the writers. So I spend most of my time talking to Peter and talking to, say, Joe Spain or Stuart Cameron. Ireland or any of Ireland's top writers to make sure that they want to work for us. And then we found the distributors and other broadcasters are really keen for it to work in our territory, because if it does, then chances are it's going to work internationally as well, rather than something that has, say, a distinctive kind of tone of voice that gets blended out or blanded out as well, then yeah. there's a good chance the drama is going to be a bit, just a bit shit. <laughs> I, like, with every drama, it would be the same. No, yeah, I, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Happy Valley like really works because it's set in Yorkshire. Like It's so specific, but if it yeah. was just in a kind of any place, it wouldn't have half of the character. No, I, compl- I, I completely agree. Um, do you always, when you're going into these co-productions are you always the lead or a leading part do you go in as would you ever go in on a drama as sort of a a minority stakeholder with less of a say because it just sounds like for these co-productions you have certain boxes that need ticking so are you always like the the yeah i mean i mean not in in terms of in terms of finance not necessarily so 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 with with kin was a much bigger budget than we would normally play so we we work in a base that if we if we are spending what we spend on our dramas that we can get a screen Ireland to invest as well, and then tax section 481 can all contribute to close to 50% of the budget. 
So that means that the ask from a distributor or a broadcaster may be 600,000 or 300,000 as a as, as a pre-buy, but something that's very manageable for most, most distributors if the content is really good. So we had found that, that a lot of, that the emphasis really firmly, strongly on who the writer is, but also people want to know what the key cast is. So can that travel? Does that help the profile of the shows that, that they can do? But I'm really just focused on our kind of color, color template of what do, what do our range of shows look like? What are we underserving? How do we how do we get finance for shows that won't necessarily get a huge audience, but are still really part of our core remit, like younger skewing drama, for example, that may play an RT2 and an RT player that may not want to be an RT1. Um, they could be difficult to finance because some distributors say, well, we can't sell them. One distributor said to us in Nipcom is that the reason why a drama is so hard to make is that teenagers don't take out subscriptions. Yeah. So it's very hard to sell YA drama to a streamer and that's why it's so so difficult. And in my mind, I said, God, I never remotely thought of that because I'm just thinking if I got a writer with a great idea and a show that we want to make for our services, please come and join it. But I think, yeah, no, it's, it's very salutary to hear the, the cold truth of that said to your face. <laughs> yeah, the horrible, horrible. <laughs> the grim, <Fine>. yeah. <laughs> no creative process there. No, no, <laughs> at all. <laughs> I mean, there's like other what? shows that like the shows we did, like we so we have the show on at the moment called Death Gone, which is set in New Zealand. Um, and that was we we developed it. And as the process evolved, most of the show was set in New Zealand, or maybe just like a few scenes set in Ireland. So it wasn't something I felt that we could commission, or we could 100 percent come aboard as a as a co-producer. So uh, that was largely financed out of New Zealand and Red Arrow also. Um, and the ask from us wasn't what it would have been as, as a commission. So we were delighted to come on board so that that's a very kind of mixed economy of coming on board to show that we have the same kind of editorial connection because i know the producers Katie and Yvonne really, really well. Um, so as long as you've got a very good respectful relationship, it worked really, really well. Also, we do a show called um, Obituary, which is uh, for Hulu and RT as well. And we and we got the premiere for that. Um, and they got a two season order from Hulu. And that's a show again that we mightn't commission because it's quite quirky. But again, delighted to come on board as a as a co-producer. And then that really adds to the kind of mix of our slate. One of the biggest things we do um, in terms of of, of stimulating new talent that isn't kind of tokenistic in any ways we commission three singles every year under a banner of storyland and they're really 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 strong we did three like this year we did uh wrapped falling for the life of alex whelan and another drama called the cousin very very young young producers young writers young directors but still managing to get key talent so wrapped Again, directed by an Irish director, Mia Malarkey, who was able to use Rapt to get on to a Channel 5 drama, which she's just started directing at the moment. Um, and the producers were able to cast really good talent like um, Ella Lily Highland plays the lead. Um, and she was brilliant in 15 Love in, in the Amazon series. So we do manage to get young talent in at that stage. And then our challenge is to make sure that once those singles are done, that those younger producers have a life that they can grow and sustain their own business. This is by making more and more dramas and feel that we know RT is part of that story too. Let me, I've got a couple of sort of more creative questions um, sure. to ask, but let me let me ask a cold hard finance question and, and get it out of the way. Obviously, you guys are protected more or less from the problem that uh, your rivals and commercial networks are having with the ad market crashing. But, you know, we've all seen the headlines about RTE this year and, you know, money is tight and there have been problems at RTE. So how does that affect your budget and the amount that you're able to commit to co-productions and the amount of original productions you're going to be able to do moving forward? 
forwards? We'll have to see. I mean, I know the appetite is for increased, whatever happens in RTE, I think the there is definitely an appetite for increased drama, increased spend in the independent sector. So our statutory spend, which is the money we're obliged by law to spend in the indie sector, uh, will hopefully grow. I mean, subject to finance, but the plan is, I think, for that to grow. And I think our ask is going to be for even more drama. So we know that uh, that there's a pinch point, with, certainly when you create a volume, as we have done for 2023, say 43 hours, that the momentum that that creates only happens, say, once every 10 years. And once you get momentum, you really need to keep pushing it through. So we know that drama drives VOD, and we know that VOD is where the audience is going to be. Very much the same as Channel 4 and BBC are the same, uh, is what Dermot does in acquisitions is he makes sure to acquire shows that complement our slate so we can drive our VOD service and then just make the argument for more drama. Because if it performs really, really well, then it's easier for us to raise finance for it. And our, our, our burden is is kind of hedged by that. In, in, in effect, we're not kind of killing ourselves on it. I think there's a thing with that as well as we, we have to be very careful when we develop as well. So we're not just chucking loads of money in development into shows that have no realistic pathway to production. And I'm sure everybody is probably going to say say this as well. But as as a PSB, we're kind of acutely aware of the value of, of our euro. You know, just, it's uh, taxpayer money. So we have to be very careful about it. And we would generally, our approach has changed since 2020. And I think this is why we have the amount of shows we have at the moment is that we will now typically maybe spend 25 grand in development per project and do a script in a deck and my backing. So we find that that's, that's all it takes, like that's enough rather than spending loads of money in commissioning four scripts and trying to get it over the line is we just the truth is pretty much always in the script and you know from that whether it is so if you're backing writer based companies um and the truth is in the script then the show if a show is really good it'll sell itself like last year we uh we have a show coming up in april called the boy that never was which is a four-parter um hard enough to finance but we got joe spain as the writer um tristan orpeninch and Aoife are the two producers from Sabotica. And last year, again, we got a script in the deck for that, went to MIPCOM, Content London, and Series Mania, the distributors came on board, which is Jonathan Ford from Abacus. We also were able to uh, enter it into the EBU pre-buy network. Uh, so I did a pitch to the EBU network with the producer, and we got a commitment from France Television to pre-buy it as well, which really, really helped. So we have a little model of how to get to the magic number, how to get to around 1.4, 1.5 per episode and then once the cast got confirmed it became like much much easier so Simon Callow joined the cast which helped the profile of the show really well and then um, Abacus were able to pre-sell it to um, UK TV. So that's kind of how, how that one worked. But that again, like, rather than saying, well, wouldn't it be great to do a four-parter and we put X amount of money in and see where the pot goes, is we, once I knew that Joe Spain was the writer, I felt that I could stand over the show and really push it as a creative and say, you know, we need Joe's voice in our schedule because she has a take on this story. It will be unique to her. And that's what will make it work rather than, than the money. Do you guys anticipate that like that that model that you've got that seems to be working quite well do you anticipate that being challenged either by like i say the commercial ad revenues elsewhere being challenged or the situation in america where there's the perfect storm of the economy and the strikes which have had everything on hold this year do you anticipate hey, that being a problem for you guys moving forward very very much i mean we will have to see how that goes and, and and how we can innovate our way out of it but definitely yeah i mean i think i don't think we could afford to do a four-parter every year because i don't think we could get them financed and if we were doing it again 
again, um, uh, I think we'll probably do six, like a closed part six serial rather than something that's renewable. So I think you can do different types of stories if they're closed. Um, we've always felt that there, with renewable series, there can be sometimes a kind of metronomic sense of, of how the stories are told. They can kind of rise and fall in the same way as I think with four parters or a closed six parter like the Harlan Coben series. They can be much more syncopated, um, very different types of storytelling and just surprise the audience a bit. I think they would enjoy that a lot more. And though, even as a viewer, I mean, I really do. I'm just saying, not feeling that I need to, I've got two episodes to settle into something. I think the, like you might, if, with a four-part, I think this, the engine needs to be much, much stronger at the beginning for plot. And you need to come into the stories much, much later um, and don't give the audience a chance to turn out. So they're, the approach is kind of different. You mentioned young adult drama, you know, being difficult financially. What other sort of areas are you underserved and, and looking for? Um, maybe it is just young adult drama, but what else ideally would you like that you're you're not doing at the minute? Oh, definitely. Definitely want to make more material with a sweet spot, uh, uh, adults 18 to 35. Um, I mean, I think if we look at our slate, we've got Smother. Um, we do that with, with, I think The Dry serves that audience pretty well. Um, Kin did because it had younger characters across it um hidden assets the gone clean sweep smother uh they like they may skew slightly older um just in terms of where the, their core is and i think we need to get more younger writers producers directors just talking eye to eye to each other effectively like maybe i love dramas that are a little bit maybe more defiant like i love that kind of looseness that say something like skins used to have but right. I think the ends would be too young for us. I mean, I think 18 to 35 people in their first first profile jobs. Um, um, so I'd love to do much, much more of that. I mean, I'm going to be really pushing that for 25 and 26. Is there a particular tone that you're looking to hit at the minute? And I, the only reason I ask is because it's just so bleak out there at the minute. Yeah. Would, I mean, you, would I... you be would you be putting like there was the whole trend like 10 years ago for Scandi Noir and you know, women being murdered and police officers trying to solve it and stuff? But I don't is is the general uh, way of the world at the minute is it too bleak for things like that are you looking for more upbeat tone or do you do we not oh care? definitely i mean family centered family dramas uh that can play in prime time that don't lead you going to bed feeling terrified at night i mean it's just the world <laughs> is coming up yeah. as it is you know i think um we are actively like developing two or three dramas two very very close to being fully financed and greenlit that unfortunately i can't talk about at the moment but i'm sure the producers would be very happy to if they got a chance um one they're both for 25 um, so we have one script in a deck. The other one, we have two scripts, um, both very, very big and renewable. Um, and neither of them are bleak. One of them is totally extremely rude and funny. And the other <laughs> one is is more, much more a kind of lighthearted family drama. So I think that crucial thing of getting a mix in your slate that you don't think that totally RTE is the place to go to lead you going to bed on a Sunday night feeling worried. You know, I think some, if you're going to, like not all our dramas will be Sunday night either because Sunday night is, it's our biggest night is where the biggest audience is so the dramas that have to work there have to work there so it will be it's more challenging to be risk to be risky in those slots but kin went there and kin worked really really well i think wednesday nights possibly half hours could be a time for something that's much lighter tonally and if it was really good and really strong like with with the dry um we put the dry out on sunday nights uh and we played them for an hour one hour back to back no we put them out on tuesday nights one hour back to back and yeah. then drop them all on on the players so i think like figuring out 
out how to work with half hours is something. I, mean, I know that when when Catastrophe was on, it was such a brilliant, such a brilliant show that I think the the streamers have really helped us get an appetite, get the audience get an appetite for half hour dramas. They're much easier, um, much it's a much easier ask of the audience to watch, and you can tell a much more accelerated storyline there, so it doesn't have to be bleak. But yeah, well, but I, mean, I think every every broadcast yeah. would love would love to have something that is just non genre, not easily definable, but is just something with a much warmer heart. What advice would you give people coming to pitch you? Is this mistakes that people make or stuff that you get pitched a lot that you know you're not into? I mean, I'm yeah. sure the people that come and pitch you sort of know, know RT really well by now, but what advice would you give people? I mean, you'd be surprised at, uh, we have we have a lot of uh, a lot of offerings coming in that are uh, serial cop dramas with a female protagonist in the lead, tons of them, irrespective of the fact that we have one Blackshore coming up in January uh, with Lisa Dwan playing the lead. So we definitely don't want any more uh, genre-based crime series with the female protagonist of the lead because then the slate would literally repeat itself literally would repeat itself um, I would be very very I'd love to find more family dramas that are not certainly no more cops and robbers for, for the time being um, never say never to anything like Kin again was such an amazing success but what Kin does is I'd be very nervous of something coming into the same territory again so a, a Gangs of London type show that was set in Cork we would commission that because we'll be so we do that with kin already so surprises and show us something else i would say to producers who are coming to pitch to us is make sure you know the slate and make sure you know what have we got that was on in 21 22 and 23 what's happening in 24 and offer us something different to that yeah the main thing what's uh what's your favorite show that isn't your own oh my god uh, i mean i mean it's hard to get beyond um white lotus both series of white lotus i really really loved um i mean i think I think HBO's grid is hard. It's hard to knock. Hard to knock. Like The Last of Us, just incredible. Um, Succession. I mean, I know HBO can do their own PR, but I mean, I think all of those shows are just amazing. I mean, I loved, I loved watching Happy Valley. I think um, Top Boy yeah. on Netflix is absolutely incredible. I think just the level and kind of confidence in the storytelling of that is so, so compelling and so immersive. It's just one of those shows you never see the mechanics of of marketing around it. You just get right into the drama and feel that you're in the world of the show. David Crean speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday, where we'll have coverage from Content London 2023 throughout the week. The podcast will be back next Friday with a roundup from the event. And in the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.